Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll, and I'd like to welcome you to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, how one individual, a highly respected individual, a top professor at Yale University, brought forth information that could have saved lives, lots of them, and how he was dealt with in his response. Dr. Harvey Risch is a professor emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale University School of Medicine and School of Public Health. He is the author of over 400 peer-reviewed research papers and over 50,000 citations. That's a lot. His focus has been on the etiology, treatment, and prevention of cancer, notably ovarian, pancreatic, lung, and stomach and cancers, and genetic disposition, diet, immunology, uh, contraceptive hormones. He is also the editor of the International Journal of Cancer and an associate editor of the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. During the COVID-19 pandemic, he was an early critic of the federal lockdown policies and the government's mishandling of the pandemic. He was one of the early high-profile medical experts to oppose the government's suppression of hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of SARS-2 infections and later gave testimony before the Senate committee about that fact. Prior to Yale, he taught at the University of Toronto. He earned his medical degree from the University of California at San Diego. He also has a PhD in mathematical uh, modeling of infectious epidemics from the University of Chicago. More recently, he has become a senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute, where he publishes critical articles about the CDC, COVID vaccines, and the government's capture of so-called science. Nice to have you with us today, sir. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. I'd like, if you don't mind, to read for the audience uh, a small amount from an article that you wrote recently, all right? Sure. Because I, I think people will get a better understanding of, of your position if they see what you're putting up for the public and also for your critics. Quote, plausibility, but not science, has dominated public discussions of the COVID pandemic. Quote, attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Anthony Fauci, June 9th, 2021 on MSNBC. And here's what you call preposterous. For one thing, Dr. Fauci has not reported accurately on scientific questions throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. For another, the essential dialectic of science is arguing, questioning, debating, but without debate, science is nothing more than propaganda. Yet on, one may ask, how has it been possible to present technical material to the American public, if not to the international public for almost three years and achieve a general understanding that the matters were scientific when in fact they were not. I assert that what has been fed to these publics through the traditional media over the course of the pandemic has largely been plausibility, but not science. And that both the American and international publics, as well as most doctors and scientists themselves, cannot tell the difference. However, the difference 
is pro- fundamental and profound, end quote. Taking that as a beginning point in our discussion, I'm very interested in seeing, if you could tell us your story, please, as, as, and I'm saying this not for you to, you know, to embarrass you, but you have been historically for decades one of the most respected scientists in your field. You've not been controversial that I can find. To the contrary, your advice has been sought by scientists around the world. You've been asked by different areas of the government uh, to come in and, and give your uh, your introspections on issues and your advice, and also you've published in some of the most respected journals in the world. So how is it that someone who has an impeccable background as the top of your the, the top of your field is then without debate, without discussion, without proper evidence, is your attacked by people? And where then was the rest of the scientific community, including many of your colleagues, who knew that you were telling the truth? You know that you are not a sloppy scientist or a physician. You're meticulous in your research. So why did they not come at least in some number and say, hold on a second before you go attacking this guy? Listen to him. Look at his evidence. Don't convict a person, then ask for a trial. And in my opinion, that's what they did to you. The forum is yours to discuss your evolution on this topic and how it's impacted you personally and professionally. Well, thanks for the introduction. I'd say, I'd summarize this in basically one sentence, that either I'm broken or the whole system is broken. And I can tell you from my point of view, it's not me. So there you have it, that what we've lived through has been a fifth generation, as they say, propaganda war fed from the top level of the U.S. security state that took command of the pandemic on day five after the emergency was declared in 2020 and did the exact opposite to all established public health protocols for managing a respiratory virus pandemic. So this was all worked out for influenza. Some of the people uh, like Tom Inglesby, who has been involved in the pandemic now, wrote the exact opposite in a major paper in 2006, talking about how to manage an influenza pandemic, where he said that lockdowns should not be used, masks are useless, um, social distancing is useless, and so on, that you manage the severity of the illness, but not the fact of the illness. And that was all correct. That was all standard public health technology of 2006. Nothing changed in public health. What changed is who was telling the public health infrastructure what to do and terrorizing the public health infrastructure into carrying this all out. And so this became a propaganda war, and not just against American people or people around the world, it became a propaganda war against the public health establishment itself, where you had people like Rochelle Walensky being told that if she didn't comply with the security state requirements of what she had to say and what her policies were, that she would be responsible for killing millions of people. And unfortunately, she believed that. And this is the, the, the problem that all of the people put in place to manage our public health response to the pandemic themselves were propagandized and convinced, threatened, or whatever to do um, 
make policies and, and, and actions that were exactly scientifically contrary to everything that was known about managing the pandemic. And so this came from a security state of the United States that uh, the National Security Council and it uh, and the individuals involved in that who had motivation for doing that, that is still somewhat unclear. The motivations were, I think, two or threefold. One is that they were attempting to cover up our role, the United States' role in creating this virus in the first place. They were also, and by covering that up, they were trying to basically put the responsibility on China, you know, pointing, see, look over there, that, that distraction policy. And at the same time, they were shilling for their friends, the, the, pharma com the large pharma companies, the so-called public-private partnership, which is basically fascism. And so, so that's what they were doing, and that's what they were enforcing. And you can understand that there were so many irrational things that were fed to the American public about behaviors that, in, in, uh, that just contradict easily observable evidence to lay people, not just to us scientists, but to lay people. For example, we knew in the first month of the pandemic that the risks to older people with multiple chronic conditions were way higher for mortality from the infection than to children, than to normal children and young adults, a thousandfold higher. The CDC put out those statistics very early on. So we knew this was the case. Then why did we demand to vaccinate every anything that moved, every human that moved basically had to be vaccinated. There was no rational reason for this. And this went on and on and on throughout the pandemic where one could see that the motives and the dissembling um, of things, the, the changes in policies that incrementally boiled the lobster, boiled the frog, um, you know, was used in a public health circumstance where public health is used to thinking to a little bit of degree in the noble lie, which is that public health, we are supposed to be experts in how we help people survive major threats to health. And therefore, we could be forgiven for basically propagandizing to mild degrees, I would say, to motivate people to choose behaviors that they would shrug off thinking that it won't affect them when we know from a public health point of view that things will eventually. That got um, became a malignant process through the pandemic where all these massive lies about things got promulgated through the public health establishment because they were either threatened or manipulated or propagandized to believe the lies that came from above them. And so much of the whole response to the pandemic has been a scam that has been foisted on the American public, if not the world. And one of the ways that this was done was by proclaiming science facts as if these were known um, uh, proven theories in, in scientific research when in fact what they were were technical statements. And you can understand that there's a difference between science and technology. This is getting at kind of the plausibility argument that I was talking about in that essay, uh, which is that 
if you make a machine that can does that can do DNA sequencing, you put in a, a specimen of DNA and it tells you what the, the genetic code is in that, that's not science, that's technology. Science is making a theory about the genetic code and then do experiments or observational work to either support or disprove the theory. That's science. Science is the observational or experimental work to prove or disprove theories. And so science can have technology in it, but technology is not science. So we were told that, you know, all these various things that the PCR test was accurate for, for uh, identifying people who had COVID um, at the time the test samples were drawn and, and on and on and on, it went downhill from there that these were all scientific facts, but they weren't. They were essentially all technology facts that were in most cases not true. I appreciate that insight and overview. Thank you. What concerns me is that at the very beginning, before we had hospitals filled with a lot of the people who were sick, we had some at least uh, temporary solutions. We could have had a national Marshall program to work with people who had multiple comorbidities. After all, we do have a major medical industrial complex and scientific community working together that have been able to save lives with people with cancer, heart disease, diabetes, emphysema, uh, kidney failure, etc. And yet we chose not to use those, and some doctors were concerned. After all, if someone presented with symptoms, they felt they had a moral and professional obligation to use what they had in their arsenal to help them through that crisis. They were told not to. And one of the people I interviewed, um, I've interviewed about 400 people on this topic uh, who all said the same thing. When we worked with what FDA-approved off-label drugs we had, we saved a high percentage of people from going into hospital and intubation and and from uh, uh, Demsevier and death, but we were told not to. And we were told if we did continue, we would lose our license. So then the state comes in at the medical board level and says, you cannot use things such as hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. There's no science supporting these. And I thought that's kind of strange because it took me under five minutes to go to the PubMed, National Library of Medicine, and see what studies existed. And there were hundreds. Now, they would, might say, well, those were not the perfect studies. And I'm then looking at the epidemiological evidence where it had been used from what was called a Sunday-to-Sunday -Sunday drug in much of Africa to help prevent malaria, taken once a week. And I was looking at other parts of the world that had used it. But also, why should we not respect doctors who were pro-vaccine and pro-patient and didn't want to wait for a vaccine? Because they saw, and one of them said, I was helping my patients. If they came in with COVID, within 24 to 48 hours, they were better. Within three days, they were back at home. And now they had natural immunity. And that would help them as well. A, natural immunity was denied to be efficacious and went against the real science. B, they almost made it criminal. In fact, they did in some cases to recommend people using uh, these drugs and they completely denigrated the use of vitamin C, quercetin, vitamin D3, etc., in helping a person zinc. So Richard Gale, you've spoken to my producer and I, we went to the National Library of Medicine and we pulled together two articles on how to build the immune system overall 
So if we were all going to be infected at some point, as you know, we're always better off in dealing with an infection of any kind if we have a strong immune system, a strong microbiome, etc. And then secondly, we used only, only peer-reviewed literature, over 100 scientific references, to show that there were thousands of studies on natural approaches uh, that they could use, again, to fortify their system. And then there was two studies done at Wuhan Hospital in China that showed intravenous vitamin C at 24,000 milligrams was able to have no patients die and major reversal. Not a word of that. The media wouldn't touch this. The media wouldn't. And I sent every member of the media our two articles because every single statement in there came from the National Library of Medicine, from peer-reviewed literature. Not a word. We were told none of this is going to work. Don't use it. Just stay at home. Well, what's going to happen when someone stays at home and is just waiting, you know, to get sick? That's a terrible psychological place to put someone. So that was my experience, saying that good people, non-controversial doctors and nurses and pharmacists were suggesting using things like hydroxychloroquine. And you were, you were the only one of two people I heard mentioning hydroxychloroquine. The other was a gentleman, a medical doctor who has since passed and uh, from cancer, and uh, they were advocating it. And so tell us the story of your fight to at least get hydroxychloroquine considered and to a lesser extent ivermectin and where they had lots of science supporting it and lots of epidemiology supporting it, but the media was in attack mode, including the New York Times. Please take us on that journey now. Well, this is... Uh... A two-hour scientific talk that I'll try to condense into a few minutes. Um, the issue, so I got into COVID because um, the I'm a member of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, and the Academy struck a committee to assist the governor of Connecticut with reopening the state after its lockdown. Now, we were not the official committee. The governor had an official committee, but we were an, an out-of-the-box committee so I and my dean were the epidemiologists on the committee. There was a clinical psychologist. There were some physicists, a jet engine designer who knows about airflow and things like that, and so on. And, and we were trying to think up alternative ideas and strategies that might help. My job was to look at outpatient treatment, early treatments. And I got into looking at hydroxychloroquine because of the initial original uh, paper that was put out by Dr. Raoult in France, in Marseille, that from his initial data and showing how well it had worked in his patients at the time. And this was, I think, contemporaneous with Dr. Zelenko, who you had mentioned, who is, had died from cancer since then, but who had also been treating large numbers of patients in his community in, I think, Rockland County in, uh, outside of New York City, and uh, very successfully with hydroxychloroquine in a combined regimen of that, zinc, vitamin D, um, and so on, uh, azithromycin or other antibiotic, and so on. And so my job in reviewing these treatments was to look at all published studies of hydroxychloroquine when used in outpatients at people generally at high risk for being hospitalized or for dying from the infection, uh, 
at least in in, in the first year of, of when this was going on, and uh, to look at efficacy against hospitalization and mortality. And uh, so I, I did that. I wrote a long essay that was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology at the end of May 2020. It got a, a very large amount of attention uh, for the journal and for the essay. And I ended up writing a, a lay opinion piece about it in Newsweek and uh, about why shouldn't we use this medication. You have to understand that hydroxychloroquine is one of the safest medications in existence. Uh, it's been used by more than hundreds of millions of people in tens of billions of doses for more than 60 years. It's used to treat malaria, to prevent malaria. It's used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and other inflammatory, auto-inflammatory diseases. And it has an extraordinary safety margin that for almost everybody, doctors prescribe this drug without EKGs, without testing, without almost anything. They do a quick history to see if there might be any allergic reactions or are there on any other medications that might be at issue. But, but basically, 97% of ordinary everyday people can take this drug without a second thought about it. In some people, it will cause some degree of upset stomach, uh, nausea, even vomiting or diarrhea in rare cases. But that's tolerable. You just stop taking it if that happens. It's not all that common. And so this is a drug that has an enormous safety margin. Now, when you're confronting a pandemic and you have no treatment, and the alternative is telling people, stay home, and when you get to the point that you can't breathe, then come to the hospital and, and basically we'll kill you in the hospital. And so that was what was being offered to patients. And, you, and so there was no opportunity cost for prescribing hydroxychloroquine. Nothing else was, was being pushed out of the way because the patients weren't being offered anything. So there, in that context, there is no reason why one has to have proof that hydroxychloroquine would work to prevent hospitalization and mortality. Evidence, fine. Proof, no, because there's no alternative and there's no opportunity cost and because this is a known safe medication. And so the idea that the FDA would say, you shouldn't use this, it's dangerous to use, and that, and for spurious reasons they would say that, has no rational relationship to the fact that in a pandemic with no other treatments, you cannot expect to have proof at the beginning you're in an emergency situation and you should be allowed to try systematically using any medication that's known to be safe regardless of its degree of efficacy known. And so they they basically misrepresented that they had to have you know multiple large randomized controlled trials of efficacy in order to allow usage of this medication. That's a fraud. That's just an outright fraud. And then, on top of that, the FDA put up a warning website, which is still there on the FDA's webpage, warning people not in big black stentorian letters saying, warning, don't take hydroxychloroquine for outpatients with COVID, and, and that's in the big letters, because of potential risks of cardiac arrhythmia problems. And that's actually not true. And in the small print, down below, they say, we, we base this warning on one study of hospitalized patients. Now, you can understand that if the FDA is saying something about disease A and tells you we base it because of disease B, 
that they don't have any data on disease A, because if they had data on disease A, they would have quoted the, the adverse event data on disease A. That's the strongest evidence they could have marshaled. The fact that they didn't do that proves that they did not have evidence of harm for taking hydroxychloroquine in, in outpatients with, with COVID as the initial early outpatient treatment. Secondly, FDA knew perfectly well that inpatient hospitalized COVID is a different disease than outpatient COVID. Outpatient COVID is a flu-like illness. And, and almost everybody knows this now because almost everybody has had symptomatic COVID at one time or another over the last three years. It, you know, it's headaches, fever, sore throat, um, some cough, tiredness, weakness, and, and so on that makes people uncomfortable and miserable and whatever, um, but is not life-threatening in those signs and symptoms. In the small fraction of people who progress, those people develop an, an overactive uh, immune response that leads to the deposition of immune debris in the lungs. And that deposition of immune de debris that filled up the lungs made the lungs inefficient at oxygenating, which is why people were unable to breathe. And it's an, a, kinds of, a kind of pneumonia that is much more difficult to treat. But it's a pneumonia illness, not a flu-like illness, and has a different, a completely different spectrum of medications that are effective um, in attempt to treat it that are not what you give in outpatient COVID and vice versa. So the FDA knew this. They knew that it's a different disease in hospitalized patients, and they were claiming that the evidence that they had, which was also spurious even in that one study, but that applied to outpatients. So this was a second fraud of the FDA that was, was being put out there in public. And you can ask, why would the FDA do this? This is a whole long question of the corruption of the FDA in acting as the pharma's PR department. Uh, that's been discussed at length for many years, and it, it was just of unconscionable degree during the pandemic over the last three. So. This is the history of, of how this came about. Of course, subsequent studies after I published the paper in May of 2020, there were four or five more large-scale controlled trials of hydroxychloroquine, all of which showing very dramatic benefit in treating COVID starting in the first four or five, within the first four or five days of symptoms, all in summary reducing mortality by 75%. That's better than ivermectin. Ivermectin reduces mortality by about 50%. Um, maybe both of them more so when used with other medications. The studies are the ones that where each individual study did or didn't use other things along with hydroxychloroquine or, or ivermectin. But both drugs prevent mortality. And th this is important to know that it's been completely wrong to say that, that these drugs are disproven because the studies, you have to understand that there's so much corruption in pharma that pharma supported the carrying out of fake studies to try to disprove the, the, uh, the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. We all know about the Surgisphere papers that attempted to disprove the, the utility of these drugs that were made on fabric, completely fabricated data that just sailed through peer review of the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, when when you you can have fraudulent papers that just sail through without critical uh, the peer review, 
then you know that there's there's corruption in, in those journals. That's what happened. They were um, uh, those papers were with, withdrawn from from publication, but that still left um, damage to the credibility of the medications, which is what the aim was in the first place. You have other studies like the ones done at the University of Minnesota, where basically you can see the fraud of a fake randomized controlled trial done right in front of you, as it's described in the paper, that there are all sorts of, of failures of how the study was carried out that led to nullification of the relationship of, of taking the drug to the outcomes. But the main problem in that study was that they used as study subjects people who got COVID who were healthcare workers. So this means people in average age in their early 40s, plus or minus. Those people were not the people who were at high risk to go on, you know, to be hospitalized or die from this illness. So there were almost no deaths and almost no hospitalizations in these studies. And so they couldn't use deaths and hospitalizations as the endpoint in the studies. So they made fake endpoints, length of time that a person was symptomatic, length of time that a person could have virus cultured from, from their nose or, or tested positive from their nose. These are fake endpoints because nobody cares about that. What people care about is not dying and especially, you know, and not being hospitalized on the way to dying. So those are the out, the outcomes that were important. Those studies did not address those outcomes. And yet the media repeatedly reported on them as if those studies had proven that, quote, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, unquote, meaning that something about the drug failed, but nothing that you would care about. And in fact, you have to understand that hydroxychloroquine is not an antiviral per se. It's an immune modulator. And what it does, in my opinion, although Dr. Zelenko represented that it created a zinc ionophore, that which is a, a molecule that uh, helps the zinc to go from the outside to the inside of cells that have been affected by the virus, in which the zinc then interferes with the virus replication, that hydroxychloroquine has a major function to subdue uh, the overreaction of the immune system. And this is the process that leads to the deposition of immune debris in the lungs. So if you keep the immune system from over-responding, then you reduce the probability that people are going to get this pneumonia and, and get hospitalized and die from the, the infection. That's what you want to do. The flip side is, however, that reducing the immune overreaction can, to a small degree, keep the immune system from clobbering the virus as it's trying to replicate in the outpatient phase, which means people can keep the infection a little longer, can be symptomatic a little longer. But that is of no important consequence when the goal is to keep people from dying. So the studies that showed that hydroxychloroquine didn't um, prevent or reduce symptoms uh, compared to placebo are of no consequence whatsoever, and yet these were paraded around as if these were debunking hydroxychloroquine. And so this is the climate of stupidity that has been pushed on the American public under the guise of plausibility. So, oh, they did a randomized controlled trial, therefore it must be valid, therefore the drug didn't work, therefore the drug has been discredited. This is the kind of plausibility that's completely scientifically irrational. Well, that's sobering. You were personally attacked. At any time, did you contact the New York Times or the Washington Post or the networks and say, you have impugned my reputation. 
I've had a 40-year-plus, more or less, impeccable reputation. Allow me an opportunity to come forward and to at least debate the issue with whatever expert you want to have on, on the issue, and I'll bring my science, they can bring theirs, and let the public decide. Did that ever occur? It occurred only once um, on CNN, very mm -hmm. early on, where I forgot his name, the, uh, the interviewer, and reporter, um, attempted to debate me on randomized control trial evidence and went through this whole dogma that if it's randomized, therefore, it must be scientifically valid. And I pushed back on that to the point where people thought that I, I was being bullied by him. And I think that made the case that this was not a scientific discussion. Um, my colleagues have disagreed with me in, to some degree. That's fine. Go read what they say. They don't provide any scientific evidence. They just claim that I'm not qualified to have done the epidemiologic research to make statements about the drug, these drugs or the pandemic or whatever. They obviously didn't do um, due diligence in, in their research on me because they didn't rep understand that my PhD was in mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics that I had published on that before moving to cancer research. And that I've been an epidemiologic methodologist and taught advanced epidemiologic research methods for almost 40 years. And this is my field of expertise. And I've also taught a course on pharmacoepidemiology, which is the epidemiology of drugs, that this is an area of expertise that one need not be a virologist to understand what drugs do, even if they are drugs aimed at treating in, uh, infectious diseases. And of course, I had coursework in infectious, extensive coursework in infectious diseases in medical school, you know, a whole year coursework that's probably about a quarter of the medical school education is on infectious diseases. So, like I said, what they wrote was, was a smear essay, and what I wrote is a scientific essay. And so, you know, readers can are, are free to read these essays and, and can come to their own conclusions. Uh, this is a great thing about Yale is that it's been supportive of freedom of academic speech, and that's what we've done. And so, you know, I'm happy for them to write whatever they think they want to write. I disagree with them. I think they don't provide scientific evidence. I've striven to provide scientific evidence and let readers decide which they think is right. At the base of all this, however, is a denial of clinical experience. How can you take thousands of doctors from around the world who are using ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and monoclonal antibodies, vitamin C, D, zinc, and quercetin, and getting good results, keeping their patients alive, getting them back to health, and count not one iota towards a more, let's say, a more a less toxic approach and a more practical approach. One clinic alone had 10,000 patients with uh, COVID and not one of those patients died who was on the program early. Four patients died, but they came in very late and didn't start the program in, in a timely manner. But 10,000 patients and no fatalities and those got it early, that should have opened some doors. It did not. Also, you mentioned that uh, that there was a lack of evidence to support the vaccine mandates. Take us on that journey. There's four points that if you could address them, if you feel comfortable, please do. I knew well, Dr. I, one second, I knew Dr. Kerry Mullis. He was a professional friend of mine. 
In fact, I have an hour and 54-minute interview, filmed interview I did with him back in 1996. He made it very clear, his feelings about Anthony Fauci, and they were not positive. The president of the University of South Carolina wanted to debate, uh, have a debate at the university between Fauci and Kerry Mullis. Fauci wouldn't debate. And so he didn't want his PCR, which is very important for what it does do, but what it doesn't do, it can't take a look at a 41 to 44 uh, replication cycle and say that you have anything other than junk there. And so he said, all you're going to get is a lot of false positives. And so when we look back, when we look back and you ask, was that the best standard of diagnosing? The answer was clearly not. And yet they have yet to apologize. They have yet to acknowledge what they did wrong. But think of all the industries that made lots of money on that. That's one. Well, actually, I have a different a different opinion about the, the PCR testing, but we could talk about that. Okay. I, what I'd like to do is to go back to Anthony Fauci. Fauci has repeatedly lied in the pandemic, and not just to Congress and, and uh, questioning by Senator Paul. Um, Fauci, when he was asked about the paper that I wrote in the American Journal of Epidemiology about hydroxychloroquine, he waved his hand dismissively on television and said, that's just anecdotal. That was a lie. Anecdotal evidence in science means a case report or two, or maybe three. When you have controlled trials, that's not anecdotal. Those are epidemiologic studies, as are randomized trials, but controlled trials in general are epidemiologic studies. Case control studies are epidemiologic studies. When you have 10,000 patients treated, that is not, that is not, uh, that is a case series, and it's a large case series, and it forms the case group of a case control study if you had a comparison control group, such as the general population. And so to refer to all of this body of evidence as anecdotal is a misrepresentation. And yet he was he got away with that because nobody ever questioned him because he was known to be tyrannical in that any reporter who ever questioned him on anything would lose immediate access, immediately lose access to asking him further questions. And that is how he maintained his media power by discipline over reporters who could not ask him things. Um, the You have to understand that in science, the really job uh, people like me, uh, scientists, is to translate nature into English. Basically, to make sense of science, to, to uh, organize it so that it can be understood by lay audience in simple terms that are logical and deductive. And this is, and when you do this, the, the science speaks for itself. The data, the studies, they speak for themselves. So if somebody is unwilling to debate you, it means that they have no counter evidence to use. That's all. Uh, because if they had counter evidence, then they would eagerly wait to debate you because they think, well, well I've got counter evidence and my evidence is better than your evidence. So of course I'll debate you. So the fact that they won't means they have no evidence. And therefore, they use censorship as a tool instead of debate. And that's been the problem of the pandemic the whole time, that all of the suppression of, of voices of the scientific community who have been active in the research in these studies about early treatment, about all of the, the uh, personal protective uh, effects, about the vaccines, about the, the other drugs, the patent medications that have been used and so on, all of those discussions have been censored because the people who are pushing all of those um, 
policies, products, principles, all have inadequate evidence to defend them. And, and that's been the problem. Has anybody ever uh, done a debate on the efficacy of the vaccines to control transmission, infection, and risk of infection and transmission? No, they put out statistics. Those statistics are, are essentially wrong within 10 minutes of them being made public. Um, and that's been the problem, that there's no debate on, on those. They just keep putting out statistics and, and, and not dealing with the actual interpretations of, of all of that large range of data. So that's been the, the milieu. Now, in the PCR testing, what's really interesting is that, to me anyway, is that the high cycle levels of things that I think it was probably your conversation with Mollus in the level of 40 or larger cycles to find positives is still finding positive material. It's still finding viral genetic material in the sample. It's just not finding whole viruses. And what this means is that people have had colonization by these viruses some weeks in the past and were most likely either asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic and they have viral remains in attached to the cells in their nose and the turbinates in, in you know inside their nose and so those are still testable and come back with these very high tighter high um, cycle threshold um, positivities does that mean they're infectious no it, but it's still it's not saying that this is a false positive it's a true positive but of something that's not the question being addressed okay are you familiar with Dr. Merrill Nass? Yes, very well. I've testified in, in her uh, case against the main board. And maybe you could take us a little further in this, because I just interviewed her yesterday. And uh, I've known her for the last 40 years as I was doing work at the Tri-State Healing Center with uh, people claiming they were suffering from Gulf War Syndrome. At the same time, the government, the Defense Department, the Veterans Administration were saying there is no such thing. There was no biological or chemical agents used in the first Gulf conflict. And that was patently wrong. I interviewed so many people, and later we found out, yes, in that conflict, Saddam Hussein was using Scud missiles because the soldiers would say that you would hear these booming sounds and a little bright yellow cloud uh, looking like a donut, and then suddenly about two minutes later, all your skin would start to burn, and you had to go and get the shower. Next day, the guys would come in the hazmat suit and bulldoze up all the ground around there and say, this never happened. And yet these people came home, and they were sick. And all that sickness led to a lot of diseases and death. So here's Mel Ness back then, who was trying to help them. But now she is, as you know, accused by the state of Maine's medical boards of how, having uh, a suit against her. Why? For being able to prescribe ivermectin to a COVID-positive patient. No patients has talked that she harmed them or it was bad what her treatment was. And so have we seen these kind of attacks by the government with censorship and by national and state medical agencies and boards against many doctors, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Paul Merrick, and Dr. Ryan Cole, among just some. But you've also undergone similar attacks, even by your own colleagues at Yale. You've discussed that. Okay, we better understand. And then you've been attacked repeatedly by the media to protect the official government pandemic narrative, even your own Yale press. So I'm curious as to whether 
despite your questioning the federal pandemic measures early on, did your colleagues who disagreed with you then, now that we have so much more evidence and are looking at how many things that we were told with absolute certainty have proven to be wrong, has anyone come forward to say that, well, we were wrong, our fault, you know, uh, we apologize, you, you were right, you know, you, you were right on what you were doing, and, and we're sorry that we went against you, because I haven't seen it. And also, as part of that, I'm a journalist also, as well as a scientist, and, and uh, I have a PhD in human nutrition and public health science, and a senior research fellow at the Institute of Applied Biology for 37 years, 38 years. And I've never, in all my career, of breaking a lot of important stories, one won two Emmys on 60 Minutes, uh, 2020, and one was a feature on 60 Minutes. I've never seen where virtually the entire, entire journalistic core in the United States at every level says the same identical talking points and the same day and without any discrepancy. They're all saying the same thing and they're all against anyone who challenged Fauci and then they attack you for using ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, saying you're killing people. And then what does that tell you about the objectivity, the fairness, and the honesty of people who are very bright? They graduated, most of them, from you know, better universities. They're highly knowledgeable. They have unlimited resources. And yet they got all this wrong. Well, I'd say two things. Let me start with journalists. So as you know, journalism schools went from teaching reporters, pre-reporters, how to be objective in evaluating and reporting on events and facts to saying, look, we have a position to advance our political goals. Use your reporting to advance your political goals, which are all on one side. And so that removed the objectivity of, of media, a lar large fraction of the media reporting. and. It's like achieving our political goals is more important than damaging the credibility of this institution. But that's what they did. Um, I'd say that the so what was the other question again? This was about. Uh, did any of your colleagues or uh, critics yes. ever apologize? So my colleagues have not apologized. But one interesting thing is one of my colleagues who was in the group that wrote that letter, smear letter against me, has since started doing a study of uh, risk factors for vaccine injury, from COVID vaccine injury. And I think she did that because I believe her husband has sustained a vaccine injury. And so I've had colleagues at Yale quietly reach out to me to say, we agree with you, we just can't say it in public. Uh, I've had students reach out and say the same thing, even among the MPH students uh, at Yale have, have told me this. Um, other students at Yale have reached out, and of course people everywhere uh, have told me this, but in, people everywhere in public health have done this, but everybody is feeling so suppressed because of forces 
compelling, as I said early on, compelling the organizational structure of public health to comply with this government demand. And I think this is all orchestrated as part of Event 201, where the media, the major media, were, were all orchestrated into being spoon-fed what they were going to put out. And I think they were either all propagandized into, if you don't do this, millions of people will die, and believing that, or the government is giving you billions of dollars to do this, so you might as well keep your institutions af economically afloat and just take the messages that we pass out from the Trusted News Initiative or wherever else that's that's putting out this propaganda and just circulate them down to the talking heads, you know, to all say them on the same day. And this is not just COVID. All, you know, there's so much political stuff that's been this way also. It even predates the, the pandemic from what I can tell. Related to your answer just now, and as I read earlier from a November uh, science versus plausibility argument and your criticism of so-called evidence-based medicine, which I personally believe has now become a kind of cult within the medical field, I interviewed some of the earlier proponents with the Cochrane collaboration, such as um, Dr. Uh, Peter Gotez and Dr. Tom Jefferson, who are now among its harshest critics. It used to be that the uh, Cochrane was the flagship of evidence-based medicine. And now there's even a more rabid group, science-based medicine, with people uh, who, in my opinion, including some at, at Yale, uh, who have been on the front lines attacking everyone who detracts from Fauci science. How has evidence-based medicine and the plausibility argument been misused to construct the narrative for SARS-2 being a global pandemic? And I'm asking because this doesn't question uh, the conspiracy issue. I'm simply asking about the inherent flaws in the methodologies and statistics relied upon to construct a pandemic scenario, and the fact that only under Freedom of Information Act did we get the communication, private communications between Collins, head of the U.S. Public Health Service, and Fauci, and in it, he's very specific. He wants to go after and destroy the so-called, you know, um, low-level uh, epidemiologists at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford University. These are not low-level anything. They're very acclaimed in their fields. And then the 75,000 medical doctors and scientists who signed the first Barrington Declaration, they want to go after them and destroy all that. So I've not seen at any time in my life where the entire a large group of scientists, medical doctors, all pro-vaccine and, and all, you know, orthodox, are now attacked. It's like a new form of medical McCarthyism if you don't subscribe to a specific, you know, standard. Your your final thoughts, please. We have four well, I agree with you. I think it is a kind of medical tyranny and medical McCarthyism. And I think that in the McCarthy era, there were fears of communist subversion in the United States. And those fears were realistic because it was happening and it had been happening. But I think the fears now are artificial about COVID have been totally artificial fears that have been forced on doctors, on scientists, on public health, and so on. We knew, I, for one, knew that, that this was a lab-created virus two years ago, more than two years ago. The genetic evidence 
in it uh, is it's got a, a sequence of, of nucleotide bases in, it, in its coding that's 19 long. It's not just the furin cleavage site, it's longer than that. That appears in only one other place, and that's in a Moderna patent from 2017. This is just not possible to have happened by chance. 19 long sequences are used as primers and probes in genetic research to be unique segments in the genome that you can find things that way with when they match up. And so this was a unique sequence, and everybody knows this, the, all geneticists know that this is unique, and therefore this had to be created, and therefore the virus was engineered. So we knew this early on, and, uh, you know, and, and then, but all these people were uh, on, for example, Fauci and the, and the origin of, of the virus were misrepresenting that it came from a lab. Well, why were they lying about it, you know, and, and that whole saga? So I think that this thing has been an engineered propaganda war at the highest levels through people who stood to gain immensely from the control and the money between pharma, the government shills that acted as the, the pharma trolls for pharma, and the scientists who were forced into it or were getting paid for it. The amount of government money that flowed into the people who went along with this and carried out this propaganda war was immense. The government you know, had hired thousands of, of people to do the um, censorship for the, the social media companies was paying them and all this. This was a whole industry of censorship that was that. And so with money comes the ability to do that. And that's what the government chose to do. And unfortunately, this even happened under the previous administration. So both administrations are to blame for this debacle. And and I, I think that that we need some kind of reconciliation that people need to understand what a scam this has been and the people need to be held accountable for the ones who participated in this who put their interest and corporate interests over the interests of the health of americans and lied about that those people need to be held to account and, and we as a society cannot go on with this degree of corruption that's made us into a third world banana republic those are not my ideals of why I, you know, extol the values of, of being an American and what I want for this country and for the American people, that we have ideals. It may not be a perfect country, but we have ideals about it not being a corrupt country. And the amount of corruption that we've lived through in these three years has both been so astonishing that it's totally tarnished the ideals that anyone could have about the country. And we need to get that back. Thank you very much for your input and continued courage to you in manifesting what a true scientist physician represents today. Well, my guest, Doc, thank you. My guest, Dr. Harvey Reich, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale University School of Medicine and Social Public uh, School of Public Health, four hundred peer reviews published scientific articles, fifty thousand citations of his work in a lot of fields. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour, and have a nice day. of you cry Brother, 
brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we 